Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Today, we're going to be talking about the National Park Service's financial position and how it possibly could be greatly improved through the support of taxpayers, along with some tweaks to what the agency is allowed to do financially. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to take a minute to ask for your help with National Parks Traveler's financial position. A survey we did the other week found that 65% of our audience finds the traveler to be extremely valuable in terms of keeping them on top of news from the National Park System and the National Park Service. However, 80% of those respondents said they could not currently support the traveler's operations with a donation. National Parks Traveler, a 501c3 nonprofit media organization, couldn't exist without the support of its readers and listeners. To our knowledge, there is no other media organization that is dedicated to daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Please head over to nationalparkstraveler.org and make a donation today. Better yet, sign up to make recurring monthly donations to help us expand our coverage, and ask your friends and family who are equally passionate about the national parks to do the same. On today's show, we're joined by Professor Linda Bilmes, the Daniel Patrick Monaghan Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. She and Colorado State University Professor John Loomis took a long, hard look at the National Park Service's financial position and came away with some pretty interesting conclusions and findings. We also want to pass on news of the proposed Camden Spaceport, a commercial launch facility, and its potential threat to Cumberland Island National Seashore in Georgia. We close this week's show with thoughts of a winter visit to Death Valley National Park. It might be uncomfortable to hear, but the National Park Service and the National Park System are in pretty dire straits. The trails, campgrounds, water systems, and other infrastructure across the park system require roughly $12 billion in repairs. And that's billion with a B. The annual budget for the National Park Service has been flat for all intents and purposes since 1999 at around two to two and a half billion dollars a year. While more than two dozen sites have been added to the National Park System during the past decade, staffing for the National Park Service has actually fallen by 7%. We constantly are reminded that the National Parks are America's best idea. And a poll released just this past October 1st ranked the National Park Service as the second most liked federal agency by the American public. So why don't we take better care of the parks and the Park Service? To explore that question, we're joined today by Linda Bilmes, the Daniel Patrick Monahan Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Welcome to The Traveler, Professor Bilmes. Thank you, Kurt. One of the first questions I had, um, you, you released this um, work back in the summer. How do you go about placing a value on the national park system? Well, um, in our book, uh, Valuing U.S. National Parks and Programs, we call it America's Best Investment because we looked at the many different kinds of values that the national parks produce. I think that the concept of valuing the national park asset is something that people know in their hearts that they attribute a value to it, but the way that the parks have traditionally thought about value has been around tourism and around the value contributed to local economies of having national parks and, and the touristic um, value that they bring, which is a kind of a value. But what we show in our book is there is a much, much larger value, uh, which includes the value of those who appreciate the parks even if they don't visit. It includes the value of the parks in terms of education, watershed protection, uh, carbon sequestration, intellectual property, cooperative programming with other agencies. And we've tried to bring together um, 
a variety of different ways to think about the value. And what we find is that looking across even a small subset of the kind of value that, that um, you can find, that there is a value of at least $100 billion. $100 billion. Well, $100 billion, which is actually a pretty conservative number, we did a peer-reviewed survey of um, Americans in which we actually asked how they would value in terms of, of what additional taxes they would be willing to pay to maintain the national parks. And the, um, the value that people placed on the parks and programs, given money that people actually have, so it's not just an aspirational kind of value, um, but just using the same kind of methodology that economists use to calculate how you value your left arm, um, find a value of $92 billion a year that um, people would be willing to pay. So even if we if, even if we just start at a sort of an absolute floor, you find that the value that people are willing to pay for the national parks is a significant multiple over the the um, federal funding that they receive every year. Now, we also hear that um, for every, I think it's for every $1 invested by the Congress in the national park system, it, it generates another $10 in economic activity. Was that factored into your $100 billion value? Well, I mean, our value was much larger than that because um, if the national parks are receiving $3 billion a year, which is a, you know, which is a high year, um, 10 times that is $30 billion. And that's about the, the touristic value that people attribute to the parks. That's the value to local communities of the tourism that the national parks bring in, which is a kind of a value, but it's not the only kind of a value. Because most people feel that even if they never go to Gettysburg, they would like it to be protected as a national park for a variety of reasons. Most people feel that even if they never go to the Arctic wilderness, they would like it to be protected. Um, and if you look at that, that concept of people's willingness to pay for that, what we call passive use value or bequest value, um, that alone brings you to a value of $92 billion a year, which over 10 years um, in a present value basis is over $750 billion that people place as the sort of value, the willingness to pay over a decade. Now, we didn't even include in that value of $92 billion some of the values of, for example, the education curriculum that is developed in the parks, which is used across America, the watershed protection and other ecosystem services where the national parks plays an important role the cooperative programming where the national parks works with uh, state and local and regional parks and many other federal agencies such as Fish and Wildlife and the Bureau of, of um, uh, BLM and so forth to um, govern an area of land to ensure that there's consistent rules and regulations across uh, uh, a landscape. So all of these other kind of values are additive to mm -hmm. that sort of very narrow $30 billion, which is the tourism value. Now, in your research, you found that Americans would be willing to pay, I believe, an additional $62 billion in taxes to support the, the park system and uh, another $30 billion to, to go towards the educational value of the parks. Is that correct? Well, in our survey, um, we were the first survey to ever look at the value of the programs. And what we found, which was quite interesting and kind of surprising to us, was that people really do value the national park programs, particularly the education and historical curation that the national parks does. So it, it's not that the people are asking to just protect the land, but they're also asking to protect all the stuff that the National Park Service does on the land, and particularly the aspect of the national parks, which is what the parks tends to call the, the telling of the American story. The, the uh, curators who actually bring to life the story of the places, whether it's the wildlife or the landscapes or the geology or the history, that all of those things are things that people value very much mm -hmm. and sufficiently that they actually attribute a significant value 
that they would be willing to pay in taxes just to that programming side of, of the national parks. Now, there are a whole additional layer of programs that the national parks run, for example, fire prevention programs and others that we didn't even ask about. So what we found in our sort of $100 billion figure is just, just a, a toehold on what we think is, is the real appreciation that people have for the parks and the programs. Right, right. When you were saying that um, people would be willing to pay extra in taxes to support the park system and, and the programming, were you able to tell whether that's above their current tax load or they would rather have um, the federal tax collections red- redistribute that extra money to the park service? Well, in our research survey, which was done on the basis of, of a questionnaire that we developed through a series of focus groups around the country that was peer-reviewed and then a survey that was peer-reviewed and then tested and run by the University of Wyoming. And people were pretty deliberate in how they thought about this. So people would say, well, you know, I would be willing to pay another $5 for this, but not more because we need to actually invest as well in the roads that take people to the parks and this and that. I mean, people had a pretty clear idea of what they could and they couldn't afford. So the $92 billion that people said they would pay in additional taxes per year is a clear indication that that's what people would pay for their perception of what the national parks and programs are. However, I have to say that that's a really conservative number because we used um, the most conservative, what I would call excessively conservative methodology in coming up with that number. Now, I think that what people mean by that is that if they could check off a box that said, this money is going to the national parks, that that was the number that people produced. Where I think um, you have a disconnect is that if they just paid another $92 billion (coughs) randomly, people wouldn't necessarily trust the government that it would be spending that on the national parks. That's a pretty pretty impressive um, finding um, that people would be willing to pay that much. And I say that in light of all the um, pushback that we've seen in recent years when um, in Interior Secretary Zinke um, proposed increasing the entrance fee to national parks? Well, I think the subject of the entrance fees is complicated because the parks are funded through a variety of different ways. I mean, parks are funded through some federal um, appropriations as well as funded through the entrance fees, some of which doesn't actually go to the parks because um, excess entrance fees and excess money that the parks collect can actually end up back in the treasury that's not spent. They are also funded by concession fees and by a variety of different sources within the federal government, some of which are not consistent from year to year. So in Chapter 7 of our book, which is Valuing U.S. National Parks and Programs, co-authored with John Loomis, who is a professor at Colorado State, we actually go through how the parks are funded and the shortcomings in the structure of national park funding. So the problem with the way that the national parks are funded is that the mission of the national parks is a perpetuity mission. They are supposed to be protecting these places to be pristine forever i.e. in perpetuity, for the enjoyment and the recreation of the public. So protecting them, not by putting a gate around them and closing them off, but protecting them so that people can enjoy them. And that's a pretty complicated mission. And the way that most organizations that have a perpetuity mission are funded is that they have an endowment, which is a perpetuity type of funding mechanism. So I'm a professor at Harvard University. At Harvard University, we want to keep educating people into perpetuity. So in addition to our operating budget, which pays for the daily operations, a lot of the investments in long-term educational um, um, effort that we do is funded through the endowment, which is a a long-term mechanism. Now, in the case of the National Parks, the the funding has not only been sort of 
very hand-to-mouth from the federal government, and it's just an annual appropriation, which doesn't lend itself to long-term investments in the parks. It's also the case that because of the fact that the national parks are so beloved, they have become a kind of political football in, in Congress with being the first agency to be shut down or threatened to be shut down every time there's a financial um, uh, disagreement in, in, in Washington. So you, you have this, the, in addition to the fact that there's a lot of issues about the structure of the concessions, a lot of issues about the entrance fees, which are only charged on about a quarter of the parks. There are issues around the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which has not actually been utilized fully over the last 20 years and so forth. So if you go through each one of these kinds of ways that the parks have been funded, uh, none of them are really appropriate for sustaining the long-term value of the parks that we've tried to assess. So we have proposed a number of alternative mechanisms for funding the parks. We're talking today with uh, Professor Linda Bilmes, uh, Daniel Patrick Monaghan, Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, about a book that she and a colleague, uh, John Loomis from Colorado State uh, University, came out with earlier this year, uh, Valuing U.S. National Parks and Programs, America's Best Investment. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Professor Bilmes, Do you think Congress is overlooking the ancillary, if you will, benefits of the national park system, the the ecosystem services of the parks, the the carbon sequestration, the the value they bring in in intellectual property, um, the scientific discoveries? Are those being overlooked by Congress when it sits down to appropriate uh, the Park Service budget? Well, I mean, they almost certainly are being overlooked by Congress. But I think that the important thing to understand is that the way that the parks actually operate is that they're operating with a combination of federal appropriations, private philanthropic dollars, and entrance fees, concession fees, and funding from a variety of different streams of revenue that are sometimes available and sometimes not. Uh-huh. So the way to make the parks funding more sustainable is to match the way they are funded more closely with the long-term mission of the parks. So we have proposed Uh, establishing a robust National Parks Endowment, allowing philanthropic dollars to be more flexibly used to fund more different kinds of things, allowing the National Park Service to issue infrastructure bonds to fund their thousands of miles of roads and bridges and other infrastructure they have in the same way that cities do, to provide the Park Service with a two-year appropriation like the Department of Veterans Affairs has instead of a single year so they don't get caught up in the constant stopgap um, shutdown um, crises, which which are a feature of our current budget process, to um, somewhat reform the way that the concessions and the entrance fees are done, and to provide a lot more flexibility to the National Parks Director in being able to redistribute excess fees 
um, and other revenues around the system so that money doesn't end up going back to the Treasury if it's not used. So we have believed that a, a sort of robust package of financial reforms could lead to a much more um, well-funded and more sustainably funded national parks system. And it, 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 so it's not just one thing. You know, the fact is that if the national parks um, system is funded at $3 billion a year instead of $2.7 billion a year from Congress, I mean, that's, that's great and that's helpful, but that is not going to sustain the national parks over the next 100 years. And when I sat on the National Park Second Century Commission, which the uh, National Parks Conservation Association pulled together, and there were a number of luminaries, including um, Sandra Day O'Connor and others on this, on this um, two-year commission, we tried to think about what could we do now that 100 years from now people would look back on and say, oh, we're so glad that that happened. And one of the things that we can do now is to be to be um, changing the funding structure of the national parks to make it more sustainable. Because if we don't, they, it's not just the backlog, but the fabric of sustaining these places will become more and more difficult and expensive, and we don't have a funding mechanism to do it. Didn't Congress uh, charter the National Park Foundation, um, I think it was back in the 60s, wasn't it, to basically be the, the philanthropic arm to, to raise dollars that the Park Service could use in the parks? Um, yes, and the National Parks Foundation has done a fantastic job in recent years. Um, it did a very good job around the around the um, centennial. But the philanthropic stream has a couple of limitations. First of all, um, philanthropy, um, which is a, a very important part of how the parks operate, is very unevenly distributed around the national parks. The national parks that may be geologically of great value may not have a lot of people around them and may not have a large friends group uh, around to help raise money for that for that um, unit. And um, private philanthropy tends to be um, uh, volatile and episodic, and so it's very unreliable for a park to be counting year every you know every year on a steady stream of philanthropic dollars. There are also limitations in what can be funded through philanthropic dollars. So in addition to giving philanthropic dollars more, um, more flexibility, it's important to have a kind of long-term um, endowment that can supplement philanthropic dollars to give more flexibility to um, the, the director in terms of how they can use and deploy philanthropic dollars and to, to um, create a more even stream of funding for the parks so that they're not totally dependent on philanthropic dollars in years which may be an economic downturn or years when philanthropic dollars may not be uh, abundant. You know, this all sounds like an incredible project that you've put together and, and highlighting ways that the Park Service could be better funded and, and manage its money. Where do you go with it now? Have you approached members of Congress to you know, possibly carry this um, through Congress to see changes are made, to, to have a checkoff box placed on uh, tax uh, returns? Well, I mean, I'm hoping that people will, will um, buy our book, take a look at our book, Valuing U.S. National Parks and Programs, America's Best Investment, which is published by Rutledge. And I'm also hoping that we will be able to testify to the House and Senate Natural Resources Committee about some of the financial funding ideas in our book. And I'm also hoping that the um, uh, National Park Service itself will look at some of the, and the Department of Interior will look at some of the proposals in our book and embrace them. But the purpose of the book was also to kind of open all of our eyes, you know, park lovers and non, um, uh, particularly, but anybody who thinks about the value of protecting public land, whether it's a local park, a state park, a, a city park, a marine sanctuary. Because what we tried to show in our book was to establish a framework for how you think about value. Value is more than just the value of the tourism into that place. The value includes how people feel about protecting the place, 
how people feel about maintaining it for the future. It also includes the values of things like ecosystem services. And in the case of the national parks, we found hundreds, hundreds of blockbuster films that have made a fortune. They were filmed in the parks, right. which were filmed there because of their natural beauty um, and the fact that they don't have a, a recognizable modern uh, logo thing in the background somewhere. I mean, so all of these kinds of things which come for value, you know, are, are valuable. And I think that what happens right now is that most people around the country and around the world have had the experience where there's a particular place of a local park or a meadow or some public land or something that they want to try and protect. They're in a battle against developers who are wanting to develop it. And the methodology for valuing the development is very accepted. It's very robust. Everybody can see, well, if you develop that parcel of land, here's the value, here are the taxes generated, et cetera, et cetera. But what's the value of not developing the land, of protecting the land, preserving the land? That's much, much less accepted, less developed, that methodology. And we have proposed the methodology for, for not developing the land, as it were, mm -hmm. in this book, yeah. which is widely applicable. Yeah. You mentioned also um, the park system, the park service kind of turns into a political football at times uh, with uh, government shutdowns and whatnot. One thing we've uh, voiced support for at The Traveler is to actually break the um, park service out from under the Interior Department and, and making it a, a freestanding agency, um, not unlike uh, the Smithsonian Institution, and, and have the director of the Park Service appointed for a six-year term um, as opposed to a four-year term with, with hopes that this would take some of the, the, the politics out of managing the, the national parks. Um, have you addressed that in your book? Is that something worthwhile to explore? My feeling is that the, best, the single best thing that could be done to try and improve the national parks service in terms of stopping it from being a continual political football and all of the disruption that that causes, not only if there is a shutdown, but even if there isn't, because everybody has to prepare for a shutdown, is to move to a two-year appropriation, which is what some agencies, for example, the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, has, um, has, has put in place. Congress has to authorize it. But one of the issues with the national parks, as you know, is that national parks are dealing with living things, you know, living creatures, living botanical species, etc. And so this kind of stop-and-go situation where they might be closed, they might not be closed, not to mention people, their holidays, their travel plans, or whatever, is highly disruptive. And there's no reason why, considering that the national parks budget has been fairly stable for 20 years, there's no reason why that budget needs to be entirely redone every single year. Why don't they just give it a two-year budget and then it has the money to operate for two years and at least it doesn't, you will cut in half the number of times it has to deal with shutdown threats. We've been talking today with Professor Linda Bilmes, the Daniel Patrick Monihan, Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School about the fiscal fitness, if you will, of the National Park Service and um, a book that she and co-author John Loomis of Colorado State University came out uh, with earlier this year, Valuing U.S. National Parks and Programs, America's Best Investment. Professor Bilmes, it's fascinating work that you've done, and, and hopefully somebody in Congress will take notice and you'll get a chance to um, lay out what you've found to, to the appropriate committees and something can be done. Well, thank you so much, Kurt, for having me on the program. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Space. 
as Captain James T. Kirk liked to say, is the final frontier. While NASA long has been the federal agency that managed and oversaw rocket launches into space, these days private companies want to take on some of that responsibility, with visions of a commercial profit, of course. There has been talk of building a private spaceport, if you will, near Cumberland Island National Seashore off the coast of Georgia. While Canaveral National Seashore in Florida long has existed near the Kennedy Space Center and drawn crowds at times to watch rockets blast off, not everyone is sure that putting a space center near the National Seashore in Georgia is a good idea. Kevin Lang is an attorney in Athens, Georgia, who is working with a group greatly concerned about the impact such a launch facility would have on Cumberland Island National Seashore. Welcome to The Traveler, Mr. Lang. Thanks for having me. So just to start off, can you help us visualize what this proposed spaceport would look like? Well, I guess the first place to start would be it's, uh, it's approximately five miles inland, so it, it differs from all existing vertical launch spaceports around the country in that they're located, they're all ex- located within yards of the ocean. So if, uh, if uh, from time to time these rockets fail or explode and from all of the existing spaceports around the country, if that happens, the pieces of the rocket go into the ocean. The debris field, as it's called, goes into the ocean. This spaceport is unique in that every rocket launched from the spaceport has to travel up and out over the Cumberland Island National Seashore, which is visited by uh, around 60,000 people annually, has uh, permanent uh, residents uh, and private property and holdings scattered throughout so it's very different than, than the existing facilities around the country. So, so the National Seashore, its beaches, the maritime forests, and of course all those uh, other infrastructure would basically be in the debris path if, if a rocket did encounter problems on launch? Yeah, on, on Cumberland, the, particularly the north end of Cumberland Island, which is, uh, contains 9,000 acres of congressionally designated wilderness area, that that portion of the park is very much at risk from the debris fields from an exclo- exploding rocket, and uh, the all of and the enti- almost the entirety of Little Cumberland Island, which is also within the boundaries of the National Seashore uh, that lies just north of Cumberland Island, is also under the proposed uh, azimuths and trajectories from the proposed spaceport. Hmm. Who's who's promoting the spaceport? Who who wants to see it built? Well, that's a interesting, uh, one interesting element of the project. Camden County, Georgia, which is the county uh, that the Cumberland Island National Seashore resides within, is actually the applicant for the spaceport. So it's a, uh, it's a build it and uh, they might come type project where uh, they hope to obtain a license from the FAA for the site. And the hope is that if they obtain, obtain the license, the site license, that is, that Someone will want will want to come along and uh, and use it. It's it's uh, there there is to my knowledge there is no um, commercial uh, space company that is uh, backing the project and uh, probably a good reason for that. I mean, you launch insurance for these launches is fairly expensive from Canaveral and Vandenberg and Wallops Island and these spaceports that that don't have the complexity of launching over people and homes and. Um, so it's a, from a commercial standpoint, it looks the project looks to be very challenging, and I, I think the that may be the main reason that there's not a uh, commercial space company that's uh, that, that's put their name behind it. it. Would this be the the first private, so to speak, or, or state-owned launch facility in the country? So of the vertical spaceports around the country, the vertical launch spaceports, uh, you have the Wallops facility, um, which is. Uh, basically kind of co-located with NASA and uh, a state authority um, in the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, of course, Canaveral and Kennedy are, are federal facilities. Uh, Vandenberg is a federal facility. Uh, the facility in Alaska, Pacific Spaceport, is actually a state authority. So the state of Alaska has a space authority that owns and operates that facility. Um, but to my knowledge, this would be the first local government um, in the United States to have a vertical launch spaceport. So I think it would be unique in that regard. And is this something that the the taxpayers in Camden County voted on or would be asked to vote on? <laughs> no, the, the, 
the taxpayers in Camden County have not had an opportunity to, to vote uh, on this project to date, uh, mainly because it's been propelled forward by the, uh, the current uh, county commission. And uh, there, hasn't been, uh, there hasn't been any sort of milestone in the project that is required a vote. So there's been no financing. They've used, general tax, they've used their general tax base to fund the project thus far. Uh, they've spent just short of $8 million to date out of their normal ad valorem and other um, sources of revenue. So it's, uh, it's been funded so far uh, over the last three to four years out of ordinary, uh, ta just from normal tax dollars. And because of that, there really hasn't been a, an opportunity for the voters in Camden County to have any chance to, uh, to weigh in on it at the ballot box. Now, um, I, I've been told that uh, most rocket explosions occur during the first two minutes of liftoff, um, which really puts uh, the National Seashore at risk. And it, it's more than just the, the above-water grounds, I guess, of the National Seashore, but you've got the, the ocean around it and, and all the marine life in there, the loggerhead sea turtles, and uh, there's a number of species of federally protected migratory birds, right? That's correct. Yeah, so, uh, so Little Cumberland Island actually uh, is, has the longest, the world's longest-running loggerhead sea turtle research project. So they've got data that dates back to the early 60s um, on loggerhead sea turtle nesting. Uh, this past year was the, uh, the most prolific um, year in, in, uh, in modern uh, history. There, there have probably been years uh, before data was collected when there were more loggerheads. But this, this last year was a particularly... A uh, very prolific year for loggerhead sea turtles in terms of total nest on Cumberland and Little Cumberland Island, and uh, and then as you mentioned, yeah, there there are uh, several species of migratory birds that actually nest in the National Seashore, but a lot more that of course travel through on their way um, on their on their migrations each year, and uh, you know those um, those habitats are very much put at risk by the debris field from a, a rocket. One of our biggest concerns is the fact that, you know, the, the, a lot of ex, uh, rocket failures do occur early um, in, the, uh, in, in the, the first stage of the launch. And the, a rocket failure over the Cumberland Island National Seashore would, would likely result in uh, a rocket that is almost fully loaded at that point with fuel. So it could take a number of different forms. So one would be an explosion in midair where you have a fiery debris field that finds its way back down to Earth. Mm -hmm. But another, another potentially uh, devastating impact would be a rocket that loses uh, thrust and that actually lands intact on either Little Cumberland Island or Cumberland Island and explodes on impact. So, um, you know, obviously that would be a pretty catastrophic um, occurrence as well, uh, both of which are... Um, are within the within the realm of uh, probability. So, now the, the the spaceport also would be available for landings. Is that correct? Uh, that's what is that's what they've uh, proposed in their. Um, we we have not seen their launch site uh, their application for a launch site operator license, but we're told that the application contemplates both uh, both uh, vertical launch uh, outbound rockets as well as a returning first stage. Um, so um, you also have the potential for a returning first stage uh, to uh, run into problems, whether it's the loss of uh, fuel uh, to slow. They use the engine to slow the first stage down as it as it comes back to Earth, uh, or it just gets off course, or you know whatever whatever happens, you 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 have the potential for um, for a first stage to to land on the on the within the national seashore as well. Yeah. Now, you said you haven't seen the actual proposal. Uh, why is that? Isn't it public information as the FAA uh, reviews it? Uh, it's, it's apparently not, <laughs> according to the FAA. Um, we've, we've submitted a, uh, a Freedom of Information Act request for it, as well as other groups. And um, apparently, from what we're, we've been told, uh, it's been labeled confidential and proprietary to the applicant. And, uh, and thus far, at least, the FAA has... Uh, taking the position that they're not going to uh, disclose it. Um, uh, those of us that are concerned about it um, and uh, are, are would, would you know would would like to see the FAA uh, put put that application into the public domain, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. So now I understand there's a December 16th um, cutoff for for public comment. Is 
is a FAA expected to make a final decision or a preliminary decision that the public would then be able to comment on after December 16th? Uh, the December 16th date, uh, our understanding now is the December 16th date will be the final decision on the site on the site license as to whether or not the FAA is going to grant a site license for this site. Uh, so sometime between now and then, uh, a final environmental impact statement will get uh, published. Um, and it's unclear at this point that as to whether the FAA is going to accept comments uh, to that final environmental impact statement. Um, the uh, National Environmental Policy Act actually gives them the ability to, to publish it with or without uh, that public comment period. But based on the timeline that this project is on, uh, it appears that uh, it appears likely that there will not be a public comment period just because there's not a lot of, there's not going to be a lot of time between the publication. Uh, date and the and the uh, record of decision. Yeah. Wow. So, is there anything that folks can do between now and December sixteenth if they oppose this spaceport and they want to let the FAA know their um, position before the agency uh, is expected to greenlight the spaceport? There, there is. Um, if uh, your listeners want to go to protectcumberlandisland.org, they can find additional information at that site regarding. Uh, ways to, uh, to let the decision makers know uh, that they value the Cumberland Island National Seashore and they don't want it to be put at risk from rockets. And uh, we would encourage them to go there and uh, educate themselves. There's a good bit of information on the site and there's also uh, instructions on the site as to how to uh, contact uh, these various decision makers. Okay, definitely something to keep an eye on if you're concerned about national seashores in general and Cumberland Island National Seashore specifically. Thanks for your time, Kevin. Thank you. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Death Valley National Park can take a little getting used to. It can be ridiculously hot, incredibly arid, and seemingly devoid of much to see or do. But if you spend a little time in the park and give it a chance, you'll find some intriguing history. You'll be amazed by the geology. You'll find an extreme contrast in elevation. And if you're lucky, you'll find beauty in one of the most incredible blooms of wildflowers. The park's geology captures your mind as you roam this more than 3 million acre national park. The sand dunes, the eroded hillsides and carved canyons, the alluvial fans painted scarlet, lemon, orange, and purple with wildflowers after wet winters. Death Valley exhibits one of the most incredible geologic displays, not just in North America, but throughout the world. Some folks, citing Star Wars or Robinson Crusoe on Mars, might even call it otherworldly. The center of this landscape found in California and Nevada is really not a true valley, not one created by a river. Rather, it is a nearly 160-mile-long rift valley, forged by the downward movement, think of an elevator, of the valley floor that separates two mountain ranges, the Armagosa Range on the east and the Panamint Range on the west. What is it about the hard salt pan, the shifting sand dunes, and the life-threatening temperatures that lure travelers to Death Valley National Park? When I first visited during the last century, 
It was summer, and about the only visitors I saw were Europeans. They seemed wonderstruck by the 100-plus degree daily temperatures. I was stupefied to learn when, leaving my room around 6 a.m. one morning, that the temperature already had cleared the century mark. That searing heat is why some car makers like to test their new models at Death Valley in the middle of summer. But why expose yourself to that ridiculous heat? The winter months are definitely the time to visit Death Valley if you can't tolerate triple-digit heat day after day after day. Sure, there might be more visitors during these cooler months, but you'll find you're able to spend more time outdoors during the day actually exploring Death Valley. What is there to do? You could check out the Wild Rose Charcoal Kilns on the western side of the park. The 10 kilns there once transformed trees into charcoal that then was taken by wagon some 30 miles west to the Modoc mine where it fired the smelters at the lead silver mines in the Argus range. The kilns were only used for about three years and then fell into disrepair. The National Park Service had them restored back in 1971 by Navajo stonemasons. These hive-shaped kilns, all standing in a line, are incredible to walk into and explore from the inside out. The winter months also are a perfect time to explore the sand dunes near Stovepipe Wells, roughly in the middle of the park. These mountains of sand were created by erosion of the mountains that rim the valley floor. Walking them takes you into a giant sandbox, one complete with pockets of vegetation and intriguing displays of the park's fractured geology. And if you pay close attention as you walk through the dunes, you'll be able to see traces of whatever creature slithered or scampered here and there before you. For a particularly eerie trek in the sand dunes, consider going under a full moon. A truly fantastic Death Valley destination, if you have a good four-wheel drive rig, is the so-called racetrack of Death Valley. This is a place far, far off the beaten path where strange things occur. Strange things such as rocks effortlessly coasting across the flat landscape. The main focal point at the racetrack is the playa, a dry lake bed. Its tabletop surface throughout the year is marked by a web of trails left in the soil by the unexplained movement of hundreds of rocks. Those rocks, some of them weighing as much as 700 pounds, appear to have been dragged across the playa's surface, leaving trails that can stretch for hundreds of yards. Multiple rocks commonly show parallel tracks, including apparently synchronous high-angle turns and sometimes even reversals in travel direction. Now, throughout the years, the number of rocks on the racetrack playa varies. No matter how many you might find, the trek out to the racetrack is a great way to spend a day. But the drive is not for everyone, and certainly not for all vehicles. The road to Tea Kettle Junction and beyond is a narrow, rugged, four-wheel drive route. Your rig should have at least 15-inch heavy-duty tires, with good rims, of course, and good tread. Having 12 inches of ground clearance is a good thing, too. That said, I have made it out there in a Subaru Outback, but it was slow going, and you always need to be on the lookout for others in rental Jeeps who sometimes think they are the only ones on the road. Now, historically, one of the most intriguing aspects of Death Valley sadly is closed to the public until sometime in 2021. If you can hold off your trip until then, definitely plan to visit Scotty's Castle. This Spanish-influenced mansion seems out of place in the high desert, but its design actually pushed the technological limits of the 1920s. Not only did Albert Johnson see that there was a solar heating system at work, but he also had a Pelton water wheel turbine installed to generate electricity for the place. And there was an evaporative cooling system employing indoor waterfalls and wet burlap to keep things inside the castle relatively cool on those 100-plus degree summer days. Unfortunately, an incredible thunderstorm back in 2015 flooded the area, undercutting and washing away sections of roads and uncovering utilities that had been buried. The mansion and its outbuildings also suffered water and debris damage. Progress is being made on repairs, and hopefully by 2021, regular tours of the stately castle will resume. If you're flexible as to when you visit Death Valley, take note of the fall weather in the park. An overly wet fall will spur an incredible bloom of wildflowers whose seeds lay around dormant until enough moisture enabled them to germinate. 
Back during the super bloom during the early months of 2016, I was able to visit Death Valley and found radiating fields of desert gold lining the road from Furnace Creek on south to the Ashford Mill ruins and north along the road to Scotty's Castle. Walking out into the waving wildflowers, my son and I spotted an occasional desert five spot and delicate sprays of Indian paintbrush. Were we more able botanists, we no doubt would have been able to identify desert gold poppies, golden evening primrose, and Fremont phacelia. Now, there's much more to be seen and experienced at Death Valley National Park. The borax works at Harmony, the view from Zabriskie Point, the colorful geology to be found along Artist's Drive, old mines, and the volcanic Ubihibi crater that you can walk down into. Death Valley has an interesting mining history as well. It began with prospecting during the California Gold Rush era and included a good bit of mining during the late 1800s and early 1900s. Various mines in Death Valley extracted gold, silver, lead, zinc, antimony, cinnabar, epsom salts, mercury, tungsten, copper, borax, talc, and sodium chloride. Even manganese was mined here. A restored old mine site in the park, definitely worth a visit, is the Keen Wonder Mine, a gold mine that operated in the Funeral Mountains from the early 1900s until 1942. It long was recognized as one of the best examples of the gold mining days in Death Valley, and it was one of the most popular sites to visit in the park until its closure, for safety reasons, back in 2008. To make the area safer for visitors, the park closed off entrances to mined openings and stabilized the tramway towers, the upper terminal, and the lower terminal. Back in November of 2017, with restoration and safety improvements in place, the Park Service reopened the Keene Wonder Mine site to visitors. Among the sights to see there is the aerial tramway that once hauled ore buckets dangling from metal cables. In the early 1900s, miners used the tramway to lower 70 tons of gold ore per day down the steep mountains. As you can imagine, there's a lot to see and do at Death Valley. So much, in fact, that one visit is not enough. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, Erica Zambello talks with Dr. Alex Dagan, the CEO of Conservation X Labs, about national parks in Afghanistan. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.